So again, I'd mentioned we on Ash Wednesday began our journey in Lent. For 40 days, we are going to take time to walk together about what does it mean to, to live a life of Lent. This is going to be a far more practical series of sermons uh, than, we're, than we might do regularly. Um, if you remember on Ash Wednesday, if you were here or you happened to watch it, I talked about a few different things we were going to do. Self-reflection and penitence and fasting and works of love and meditations on God's word. I think there's a sixth one there. If you remember that, you uh, get 10 points for the service today. And as we go into this time, I want to provide some preparatory statements for the period of this series of sermons. We'll probably go back here every once in a while. And I think one of the lines in how we as Christians think differently, you know, People ask all the time, well, what does it matter about denominations, or what does it matter if you're mainline or evangelical or this or that? And while, yes, it's true that we all generally love Jesus, sometimes there's different levers we pull about what does it mean to love Jesus. And one of the big ones, I think, really comes down to how we review, how we understand, and how we view our response to what Jesus' ministry is all about. So I think there's a train of thought that argues that it's mostly communal, that the whole reason why we show up here and we study God's word and we learn what Jesus says in the gospels is so that we can take it out and serve our communities. Then there's also a train of thought that says that all that Jesus's work was, was predominantly personal. Like Jesus came into this world and died and was resurrected so that we would have personal salvation, that our sins were covered. And while mainliners tend to position ourselves to the former, that we study the scripture and we go out into this world to care for the world, we often, and this is where we get ourselves into trouble, we often dismiss the latter. We get so focused on making sure that we proclaim God's justice in the world that we forget, yeah, it does change us personally. There are some ways that we might act differently as a result of God's work in the world. But Lent provides a perfect period of time to go back and say, how does this whole Jesus thing affect us personally? How are we changed because of Jesus? How, when we go through these 40 days, we are different people when we meet Jesus at Easter? But it always has to be at the backdrop of all the stuff we studied in the previous few weeks in Epiphany. That there truly is a new world happening. God's commonwealth is breaking forth. When Jesus began his ministry, he said, the world is going to be different. The way you do things is going to change. So perhaps the best thing we can ever do as thoughtful Christians is on one hand say that, yes, we are changed personally, but it's not just for our own ends. Instead, it's to go out and to do God's work in the world. And holding those two together is what we'll try to do over the next few weeks. Who are you? Who, who are you? That seems like a kind of genera generic, kind of silly question. But you know, if you really sit with it for a while, if you remember um, Goodwill Hunting, there's that scene where Robin Williams and Matt Damon are together. You know, Robin Williams keeps repeating the statement over and over again, and eventually Matt Damon starts to break down. I feel like if we kept asking ourselves over and over again, who are you? At first, we'd just dismiss it. We'd say, who are you over and over and over again? It starts to penetrate our hearts a little bit more deeply. 
And do you remember last week when we talked about this? I, I had posed that question a little differently. I said, imagine if we were going to sit down for the first time together, pastor and member of the congregation, and we were going to talk together about a little bit about you, and you were going to tell me what you were all about. And you thought about some stories, I'm sure. I thought about some stories. And that's a part of who we are. You're a lot of those things, but you're also some of the descriptors, too, that we mentioned. You are your height and your weight and your education, and you are the job that you work, and you are all those things. You're also some of the roles that you play, some given to you, some claimed, some forced upon you. You, know, you might be a parent. You might be a spouse. You might be a, a, a widow or a widower. You might be a divorcee. You might be um, a laborer. You might be a white-collar worker, right? We have all these things, and we assign them to ourselves, and they start to build more and more about we are. And at some point, we can feel buried by all of this, can't we? We can't almost keep track of our own roles and our own lives and our own understanding of self. Not to mention the times that there are certainly always conflicts between roles and responsibilities that we take on that represent who we are. I mean, just a simple example for me personally is there are plenty of times when being a pastor and being a good father and a good husband can work up against each other, right? There's always a member of the church that will call me at 7 p.m. on a Friday night. There's always a Flanders in every congregation. And they're good people, and we love them. But sometimes I have to say, well, should I answer this phone? And I'm snuggling with the kids. We're, we're watching a movie. And sometimes we have to say no. Now, that's not a bad thing. Again, I mean, again, Flanders is, is great. But each of you have these same conflicts, right? You say you're this thing, and you say you're this thing, and they're not really compatible with each other, but you feel like it's important. And so when we really talk about who we are, it is an incredibly complicated, difficult, combative question once we really start digging into it. And so if Lent is a chance, and if we take it at its word, to strip some things away that weigh us down, that it isn't we give up chocolate or we give up feeling bad about something, but we say, you know, and it's, we're going to jettison that. We're going to focus on things that we can strip away to become who we think we are. Are there parts of us, roles that we play, things that we understand ourselves to be, that if given the option, we would be glad to let go of for a time? Or perhaps put another way, once all of the work that we can do to clear the stream and clear all of the stuff that's all around us, at the core, at the bottom of it all, who are we? To understand that takes some self-reflection. When we see Jesus here this year, again, almost every Lent, we begin with this story once again, Jesus being tempted by the devil. We see him in a moment in the wilderness. 
Now, wilderness, you should keep in the back of your mind whenever you see it in the text, is often a place for supernatural wrestling. The wilderness is a strange and beautiful place in the text. And it's also one of the most thin spaces between humanity and the divine. Wilderness is liminal. Even if it's not immediately accessible or understood. We remember the stories of the people of Israel wandering for 40 years through the wilderness. And God was there so often through plumes of smoke and pillars of fire and manna and quail. And yet they still wanted their flesh pots back in Egypt. Well, you know, we were better off under oppression. We were better off as slaves. We were better off when we were dying left and right under the hand of an oppressive uh, power. The wilderness presents a lot of difficult situations for us to build tension in our own hearts. Elijah couldn't find God at first after he had had this big battle with the prophets of Baal and he skirts off into some caves and there's this huge, massive fire and God's not in the fire and there's this magic rushing wind and God's not in the wind where God is, is in the silence, in the quiet. God was there in the wilderness. God doesn't always show up immediately, but God does show up in real concrete ways in the wilderness. So the wilderness is special, and Jesus is seeming to take stock into who he is. I wonder if the devil is a character outside of Jesus or if it's inside Jesus. This is a question I wrestled with this week as I thought about this scene and I closed my eyes and I imagined it. And of course, uh, in the initial reading, we could see Jesus and the devil going toe-to-toe out in the wilderness. But I don't think it's hard to imagine in any one of our hearts a character on one side of our shoulder and a character on the other side having very similar conversations on a random Tuesday evening on the middle of 95. Certainly each of us have moments when we hear a voice like this, a part of what we see of us challenging us. And when you read this text, because we have this assumption that this is bad, right? It's the devil. But when you read what the devil's offering, like honestly, it's not that bad. It's it's sustenance. Jesus, I know you are really hungry. I mean, I can't go two days without running to the grocery store. You've been been fasting for 40? Dude, all you got to do is just say rock, turn into, you know, Panera bread, and you'll be fine. I mean, if you're hungry, you want to get something to eat, and if I could snap my fingers and make something to eat, well, I don't think I'd be too disappointed. Hey, Jesus, the devil says, Listen, all you got to do is say, I'm cool, worship me, and you know what? All of these kingdoms, they're totally yours. Well, that sounds great. If all I got to do is make a deal with the devil and I've got the power for every single kingdom, there's a lot of stuff I'd get done if I had that kind of power. Also, if I had the power to fly, well, that would be pretty amazing too. I mean, on the surface, these are not bad things. And who wouldn't want to have these things, especially if all we had to do was wave a hand 
God would be like, okay, that's fine. And certainly, while we don't have this kind of mystical power, we make these kind of decisions all the time. Millions and millions of decisions every day, we choose to work really hard to turn stone into bread as often as we can. That's why we're going to show up to work tomorrow at 9 o'clock, because we've got to make that stone into bread. There are people, and we are watching this unfold right on the border between Russia and Ukraine, that people will go to such lengths to have power, to have authority. And we try to bend the will of nature for our own ends all the time. None of this stuff should be shocking to us when we look at it. And if we're honest, this isn't just Jesus wrestling with the devil. This is us wrestling with what we could have all the time. And again, if I could be on some mountaintop and have a nice mansion and have all the world in my control, and if all I had to do was worship the devil, well, maybe sometimes that doesn't sound so bad. Don't quote me just that section or I will get kicked out. <laughs> in context, that makes so much more sense. But of course, Jesus doesn't do this, right? Why doesn't he do this? Well, let's do a little bit of backstory about what Luke tells us before Luke 4. In Luke 2, we get this story that sends every single parent of a young child through the roof. <laughs> this story of Jesus' parents can't find him anywhere, and he's hanging out at the church having conversations with the other rabbis in the temple. And Mary's like, Jesus, why did you freak us out? And Jesus is like, well, what does it matter to you? I'm hanging out with good, you know, having good conversations with Brother Rabbi over here, right? He's hanging out, he's being wise, he's being smart. And this is him at a little kid's age. And then after we get that story, then we see John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is telling how somebody's coming that's pretty significant, and you ought to get ready for it. And then Jesus is baptized, and God says these words according to Luke, you are my son, my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. Do you notice the possessiveness here? Sometimes it's you are, you are the son whom I'm well pleased. But here in Luke, it becomes personal. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. And then immediately after, we get this boring sort of series of genealogies, right? Because every gospel apparently has to have some family tree in it. But Luke might be trying to tell us something as a result. That from the youngest ages, Jesus found something deep in the stories of God's faithfulness. Now, I don't know what it would have been like to have been Jesus at eight years old. It would have taken, I imagine, a really long time to fully comprehend being fully God, fully human. I don't think that's something that comes up all, all right at once because... Jesus is still human, but he seemed really attracted to the stories that he was hearing. And Jesus also heard from God that he was loved and that he was pleasing to God. And any of you who have ever heard one of your beloved family members say, well, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed, know the difference between being loved 
and being pleased by. Two very important and two very distinct things. And he had also done the work in times outside the wilderness. Jesus took time to study, and he was baptized, right? He's done the work that got him to this point. And then finally, he was part of something that had been happening for generations. Those Ancestry.com pieces in the Gospels are not just there so we can glaze our eyes over, because they're reminding us that Jesus is part of a deep history from literally the beginning of the world, according to Luke. So when the moment of being in the wilderness happened and everything else was stripped away, he found the core of who he was. These responses that he gives aren't just sort of glib one-offs from VBSs from the temple that he remembered when he was six or seven, right? These were clearly convictions that he had. Because you'd have to be so convicted in order to avoid turning rock into bread when you're 40 days hungry, forgetting control of the whole world, and being able to fly. You'd have to be really convicted. Because even as I'm saying them here, in the sanctity of this pulpit, I'm like, eh, always wanted to fly. And certainly if this is within Jesus himself, this conversation between Jesus and, and the devil, it's a moment to let go of rules and identities that might have seemed attractive but weren't truly him or what he was called to be. Friends, I know it's so easy to take the allure of being indiscriminately wealthy or to have untapped power. That's why people still run for public office in spite of the bureaucracy. It's why people work so hard. It's why we know Elon Musk's name, for goodness sakes. The guy's a doofus. Well, let's, just, let's just admit that. I'm sure he'll tweet me later. But <laughs> Otherwise, we wouldn't care about the guy. We wouldn't care about Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett. If Warren Buffett was just a guy who just had some interesting stock advice and he put it on his website, we probably wouldn't pay much attention. But you know what? The allure of that kind of wealth and the perception of that kind of success tells us something about what we want. I would argue that in this telling, it is very compelling to look at this as an internal struggle of Jesus while he's in the wilderness. If simply because, as opposed to other tellings of the Gospels, there's no angels who come and attend him afterwards. Which I don't know about you, but then it makes it feel much more real to me. Makes it feel much more personal. Makes me feel like I understand Jesus a little bit better. At the end of the story, it's just kind of done, except we find out that, Jesus, that the devil is going to head off and find a more opportune time to challenge him later. In ellipses that will continue to carry through the gospel. Now listen, I am no self-help guru. I have not had any sort of bestsellers on the Amazon.com bestsellers list on how to manage this kind of thing. There are plenty of folks who have made a lot more money and are a lot more successful about how you can navigate self-reflection, figure out who you are and what you need to let go. 
However, in light of this year's Lenten journey, let me offer a couple things. I think the first thing that's worth realizing is that we, too, are in a wilderness. As much as we'd maybe like to be in paradise right now, it's hard not to see ourselves in the middle of a wilderness. Thanks be to God that we are almost back to where we used to be in this third Omicron spike with COVID. And like, we're going to be able to shake hands and I, you know, I could say, we don't have to worry about masks as much as we used to, but COVID still exists. We hope that we're at the end of this pandemic, but it still happens. And just as we could conveniently start to forget about COVID, here comes Ukraine and Russia. Yeah, so, you know, World War III or World War I, Volume Two, I don't know, but certainly it gives me a little bit of anxiety. Under that backdrop is the worst inflation we've had for four decades. If you don't feel like you're in a little bit of a wilderness right now, I want to be where you're at. And that's not to mention what could be going on in each of your lives personally that we don't even know, that we haven't had a chance to share together in community. But as a community, it also shouldn't shock you that perhaps we as a church are in a little bit of a wilderness ourselves and have been for a few years. But our first move can be to recognize that the wilderness still is the thin space where God reveals God's self the most. God is still here, dear friends. God can show up concretely, but it may be ways that we don't always expect. It may not be in the big fire. It may not be in the rushing wind. It may be in the quiet silence. But God is still here, and God is always in the wilderness and the thin spaces. So we're in a wilderness, but consider the good stories that you have that seem to go back as far as time. Can you remember a time that you were so captivated by understanding God and listening that it made you lose track of the time or everything else? Can you remember a time where you're like, oh my gosh, this is fascinating? You know, it might feel weird that we spend a lot of time every three years, we go back to the same lectionary text, but I promise you, every three years, there's something brand new that comes out of the text. We tell this story every year, and this story is a little different this year than it was last year and will be next year. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean big mountaintop experiences that we all have. We put our hands in the air, praise music, and we feel God. It might not be that because those experiences are all too fleeting. But if we look back to Jesus at the temple, we see that it had something to do with deep and profound engagement, such that he lost track of the time and lost his parents, but he was safe in the temple, understanding who God was. What is that thing for you? Because I think that thing resonates deep in your hearts and might be at the core who you are where are the times out of your baptism, your connectedness with God and the people of God, you hear God's voice saying God loves you 
and God is pleased with you. And friends, if you have not heard that in too long, let me tell you, God loves you and God is pleased with you. Where do you sense God's warmth beside you? When are the times you want to hear God say that to you? You are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Is it when you're caring for others? Is it when you're loving others? Is it providing someone a hug who is clearly in pain? Is it doing the good work of ministry that God calls us to do? If so, that might tell you a little bit more about the depths of who you are. And I think that the intersection of those things is absolutely the core of who you are called to be. And as a result, everything else could probably be stripped away or at least pruned down a little bit. And when the devil comes on our shoulder and offers us other things, and when the other roles are there, we can respond in the wilderness. Friends, this work isn't always easy. But if we really believe in this wilderness journey, and especially these 40 days, we consider ourselves walking through the wilderness with Jesus during Lent. Maybe the self-examination might allow us to see God in ways we have not seen God in a long time. Buried under all of the roles and responsibilities and everything else that we think we are, but at the core we just want to hear, you are my beloved in whom I am well pleased that we want to sit astounded at what God is offering and use those to continue to carry us through the wilderness. So take this opportunity this Lent. Perhaps if you hear anything else over these next six weeks, it's just an invitation. It is okay to take some time to reflect. It is okay to take some time to wonder who you are. Literally, our liturgy provides that for you. Take advantage of it. Call me. I will walk with you. I am doing my own self-reflection now as well. Let's do it together. But thanks be to a God who shows us that even in God's Son, there is space for self-reflection and growth as we enter this holy Lenten period. Thanks be to God.